Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. My name is Nathaniel, as I've already been introduced. And for the past few months, we've been going through the book of Mark in the New Testament in the Bible, looking at the story of Jesus. It's kind of, it's from Mark 15, and it's looking at really the climax of what happened. And it's one of the, it's considered one of the most important moments, uh, not just in the Bible, but actually for all of humanity, uh, for all time, one of the most important moments in history. If you take a moment now, just have a think for a second, and then I'm going to ask you to answer. Um, Apart from in churches, where else do you see the symbol of the cross? Where else might you see that? You can just shout it out wherever you are. Where we schools? Okay. Flags? Yeah. Sometimes you see on flags. Pharmacy, chemists. Any other places? Jewelry? Yeah. First aid boxes? Absolutely. Red Cross. Okay, brilliant. That's, that's good. So <clears throat> the, this, the Jesus and his death on the cross was so significant that the symbol of the cross has now become a symbol of rescue across the world. We see it, as it's already mentioned, on aid agencies, on first aid kits, on, in hospitals, in pharmacies, on jewelry. People wear them. Sometimes they think they're lucky. We see them all the time. But why was the death of Jesus on the cross so significant? What was such a big deal? Lots of people died or were killed on on crosses at that time. Well, as we've been going through the book of Mark, we've been studying and looking at how Jesus was not just an ordinary human being. Jesus was fully human and he was fully God. So if we say that Jesus, who was fully God, died on a cross, wow, that seems like a pretty big deal to me. Today, we're going to be looking at how Jesus responded to his death on the cross, and then we're going to explore how we respond to that, and we're going to be taking communion together as well to remember what Jesus did by taking the bread and the juice together. I remember when when I was a child uh, and the opportunity for communion came up for taking the bread and the juice, I was told you would take this to remember how Jesus sacrificed his life for us. We were to repent of our sins. We were to remember and thank God for his love and mercy and grace. And at the time when I was a child, I was like, oh, I really want to take communion. I really want to take communion in church. And it wasn't because I wanted to do the remembering Jesus bit. I I just really wanted to eat the bread. And at that time, I did not fully understand the impact of what Jesus had done. And here this morning, maybe you do understand that impact, or maybe you're still working through it, maybe you're not sure. But what Jesus did in that moment, he did that for every single human being in the whole world, throughout all time. Jesus died for every single one of us, and that was the greatest act of love. And the invitation to take the bread and the juice, which we're going to do later on, The bread and the juice represents his body and his blood. That invitation is for you too, if you choose to believe in Jesus. Before we go any further, we're going to watch a a video of Arthur's story. Uh, And he also started coming to church, maybe not for Jesus initially, but Jesus captured his heart with his unconditional love. And I'm not going to spoil it any further. Let's just take a look at Arthur's story. Good morning, everyone. My name is Arthur Wilkes, and I've been a member of Riverside Church for 27 years now. It all began when I met David and Hilary Worthington. In fact, I was working on their house, painting and decorating. Hilary came home one day to hear me singing, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, at the top of my voice, and apparently the wrong words. Hilary said to me, Those are the wrong words. I said, how do you know? 
And she said, because I'll go to church along with Christian. Because a long story short, eventually, I was invited by David and Hillary to come to Riverside Church. I thought to myself, a good opportunity to get more work because Christian people will pay and they won't cheat on you. So I agreed to come along to church to a thing called First Sunday, which was a celebration of the church's works, the young people, everyone joined in, and it was wonderful. I came a couple of times to that, was not particularly concerned about becoming a Christian. Indeed, it was making me feel that perhaps I'd been right all my life. But then I was working on a house in Cotton Lane, Mosley, and who came jogging down the lane but Nick. And Nick said to me, hello, you're Andrew, aren't you? And I said, no, my name's Arthur. And it was raining, so he came and stood under the porch of the house with me for approximately 35 minutes. Never mentioned church, never mentioned God. We just chatted like two men would do. And then as he left, he said, will I see you at Riverside on Sunday? And I said, oh yes, of course you will, Nick. After he'd gone, I thought, why the heck did you say that? I had no intention of going to church. But anyway, having said that I'd go, I, I, I did. I came and listened to Nick, listened to various speakers, and it became kind of a hobby to come to church. But then it happened. What happened? I'll explain it like this. I was talking on the telephone to a friend of mine. He said, have you, have you been anywhere this morning? I said, yes, I've been to church. Church, he said, you don't go to church, you don't believe all that rubbish. I said, oh, but I do, I'm a Christian. And then something wonderful happened. I'll, I'll describe it to you like this. On the telephone on Easter day, just sitting in my chair, not even thinking of you, Lord, but suddenly you were there, close enough for me to touch. Your presence I could feel. Your death for me upon the cross became so very, very real. A pounding heart that filled with joy, closed eyes that brimmed with tears, a sense of loss as you took away all those sinful years. Oh, how I love you, Jesus. I'm so glad you came for me. You took the burden of my sinner's yoke and your spirit has set me free. Now I'll sing your praise at Riverside. In the church I play my part. You walk with me every day, locked deep within my heart. So now I will follow you, Lord, and I know when my time on earth is through that by the glory of God's grace, I'll spend eternity with you. Amen. And that is exactly how it happened. And I've been a Christian from that day until now. I still get very emotional in church. Sometimes it doesn't mean anything, but most often I'm so glad to come. And we can only do that now if our glorious friends, David and Hillary, bring us. Thank you for listening to my story.
I thought that if I watched it a bunch of times, I wouldn't feel emotional watching it, but it still makes me want to cry every time I see that. Thank you, Arthur, for sharing your story, and thank you for the poem that you wrote within that. It's beautiful to see how Jesus has changed your life. Now, his impact, the, the impact that Jesus had on his life is just one example of what he can do for all, for all of us, how he transforms our lives. And next week, Judy's going to be speaking about the resurrection of Jesus, which is just as important and just as big. But, but now we're going to look at, we're going to explore how Jesus responded as he was dying on the cross. Let me set the scene a little bit for you. At the start of the week, Jesus was riding into the city and people were singing praises and shouting, Hosanna, which Tim spoke about last Sunday. He was talking about that, that passage. And then in chapter 15, where we've just read, that's the end of the, re- of the same week. We've reached the end of the week. And Jesus has just celebrated Passover with his disciples. And he has told them how they should remember him. He takes the cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is a throwback to Exodus, a book in the Old Testament where the Passover tradition first started. It was where God's people were about to escape slavery in Egypt. And their instructions from God were for each household to slaughter a lamb at twilight, and then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the house where they eat the lambs. Interesting symbolism there as well. And the blood on the door frames was a sign so that God would pass over those homes. Hence, it's called Passover. That's where the name came from. No destruction or death would take place in those homes because of the sacrifice of the lamb. Now, all throughout the Bible, we see examples of sacrifice time and time again, where God's people had to make sacrifices to to be right with God, but it had to keep happening again and again and again because people kept messing up. We keep messing up, right? It kept happening again and again until Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that humanity needed. Once and for all, Jesus washed away our sins and made a way for reconciliation between humans and God. And we call that atonement. Now, back in the book of Mark, as Jesus and the disciples were remembering Passover and the lamb that was sacrificed, Jesus alludes, uh, by using the bread and the cup, he alludes to him being that lamb which which will be sacrificed on the cross. He was to be sacrificed on the cross. Now, at the time, crucifixion on a cross was Rome's most terrible form of torture and terrible form of death. It maximized and was, it was infamous for its pain and its shame on the victim. And whenever they crucified the guilty, they would find the most public place where the most people could see, and, and that's what they did to Jesus. Even though he was innocent, they crucified him. There are loads of Old Testament passages that point directly to what is to come with the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, You can see it in Isaiah 53, in Psalm 69. There's a bunch of other ones as well. But today I want us to look at one that is specifically quoted by Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. If you have your Bibles, could you get them out or just a Bible app? Get them out just for a second. Um, It was read to us, what did Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, When you look at that bit, which is Mark 15, which verse is it? Mark 15, who can tell me? I can tell me. 34, Mark 15, 34. What does it say? Is there a little something next to it? Is there a footnote? What does the footnote say? 
Thank you, Henry. Psalm 22, verse 1. By the way, uh, whenever you're reading the Bible, it's always really helpful to look at the footnotes because they help us piece together the bigger story of what's going on in the Bible. So always do see what those footnotes say and see the kind of throwbacks that they have to the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just crying out. He is quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. But what if Jesus isn't just yelling that verse in despair? as if God has left him? But what if being the spiritual leader that he is and someone who would have memorized loads of scriptures, loads of, loads of the Old Testament, what if he is beginning a meditation on Psalm 22? I'm going to read some of Psalm 22 now. And as I read it, I want you to think about some of the parallels to what Jesus is experiencing or has just experienced as he hangs on the cross. And I'd encourage you to, to take the time to read the whole of Psalm 22, either in your life groups or in your own quiet time with God. But, but let's just look at some of that now. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Verse 16, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Verse 22, 20, 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. Verse 30, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. I think it's amazing the connections we see here. And it's incredible how this aspect of God's rescue plan was foretold so many hundreds of years before. And whilst it might feel like Jesus is crying out to God in a time when he feels completely abandoned in his pain and his suffering, what if Jesus is actually using the psalm to ground himself in the truth of who God is, despite his physical experience? If Jesus is meditating on this passage that was written hundreds of years before, he may feel in that moment, like God has forsaken him. But as he goes through the verses in his mind, recounting the similar experience of the psalmist, he will reach the words saying that God has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help, and that all of the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. It's actually a triumphant conclusion as he holds on to the truth that future generations will be told about the Lord. Isn't that what we're doing right now? We are those future generations being told about the Lord and his good works. So the way that Jesus responds in his state of the utmost shame and pain is one of trusting in God and the truth of God's word in the Bible. This is why it's so, so, so helpful for us to read the Bible and to memorize verses. Because when we encounter challenges in life or trials or experience suffering, our feelings may be deceiving. But the Bible holds true, and we actually often need reminding of that. Now, I'm, I'm not saying at all that emotions or feelings are bad or that we need to just dismiss them. 
I'm not saying that. God made us emotional beings. That is how we were, we were created. But I think if we look at our own experiences, there are, there are times when our emotions can deceive us or they can distract us from truly seeing who God is. So we thank you, God, for the fresh perspective that your word brings for us where we can praise you despite our circumstances. The Psalms in particular really help us shape our response to God, just, not just through the joys, but also through the trials in our life. But here in Psalm 22 specifically, it reveals something of the inner life and the dependence that Jesus has on his Father God. And we can do the same. In those moments where we cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can also follow the Psalms and conclude that in fact, God does not turn his face away. He hears our cries and he is faithful. So we've looked at how Jesus was responding on the cross. But how do we respond to Jesus on the cross? What's our response for that? Now, some of you will know that my parents have been visiting uh, us for uh, a couple of months now, and, and lots of you have made them feel very welcome. Thank you for that. On their first week here, which was back in August, they were on, on their own. They were getting a bus, and they were kind of trying to figure out the bus system. So they're waiting, uh, and they, they encounter this woman who's at the bus stop, and they just are asking her, you know, do we do this? Is this how we, do we pay like this? Is this okay? Is this going in the right direction? This woman's really helpful. Uh, and so they get on the bus together. And so they keep up the conversation, and they're chatting for a bit. And the woman suddenly goes, are you Nathaniel's parents? <laughs> and they go, oh my goodness, spies everywhere. <laughs> what are these connections? Uh, and it turns out this was someone from within Riverside. And there was something, whatever it was in that moment, whether it was the accent, whether it was the appearance, whether it was intonation or, or whatever it was, there was something, the character traits, whatever it was in that moment, the identity of my parents was revealed. And then there was relationship. There was a depth of relationship because their identity was revealed. Now, in Mark 15, at the very end of that passage that was read, we see a moment with the centurion. This was an officer of the Roman army, not a follower of Jesus in any way, but he was probably on duty from the moment that Jesus was arrested through his flogging and was waiting until uh, during his crucifixion as well. And in verse 39, after all this, he sees Jesus die on the cross and he declares, surely this man was the son of God. Something was revealed to him in that moment. Now, some theologians say that this is the narrative climax of the book of Mark because this is the first time in the entire book that a human has recognized Jesus as the Son of God. All throughout the book, we have demons and evil spirits that recognize Jesus as the Son of God. They say he's the Son of God. They recognize his authority. But never, not until this moment, has a human spoken that out loud and recognized who Jesus truly is. If you remember uh, a few weeks ago, in, in chapter one of Mark, God says to Jesus as he's being baptized, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We're gonna take a look at some of the mirroring here between Mark chapter one and Mark chapter 15 because there's lots of parallels here as well. When Jesus is baptized by John, the heavens are torn open and the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And here as Jesus dies on the cross, he breathes his last breath. He expires, breathing out his spirit. And the curtain temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, lots of parallels here. 
This wasn't just any ordinary little window curtain, okay? This was a really incredibly thick curtain that was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. It was massive. So if that ripped in two, it was quite a shocking moment. And the temple curtain was actually a barrier for people to come into the presence of God because God was so perfect, is so perfect and so holy that no ordinary person could step foot into his presence without just immediately dropping dead. That, that, was, that was the reality. Only once a year, the high priest could enter into that place without dying, enter into the Holy of Holies. That was what the bit behind the temple curtain was called on the innermost section of the temple. But when Jesus died on the cross, and as that temple curtain tore, he made a way for us to have a personal relationship with God. His sacrifice covered our sins and made us a new creation. So the significance of the temple curtain being torn in two is that it symbolizes the start of a new relationship with God and that it's accessible for all of us, not just a particular high priest. Every single person can now have relationship with God. And now it wasn't just God who was declaring Jesus as his son, as he does in chapter one. This time, it's a human being saying, surely this man was the son of God. The true nature of Jesus is revealed, and then there is relationship. Theologian James R. Edwards says, while Jesus is alive, humanity wills his death. As they shout, crucify him. Only in his death can humanity see him as the way to life. So what is our response? This life on earth is just a small part of the bigger picture. And if you're thinking, well, what difference does knowing Jesus now make to my life? What difference does it make? Probably nothing big. The invitation for all of us is to accept the sacrificial love of Jesus and step into eternal life with God, as Arthur shared so beautifully. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus has been revealed to each of us. And therefore, relationship is available for each of us as well. We can choose to accept him as our Lord and Savior so that when our earthly bodies fade and death inevitably comes, we don't need to be afraid. It's not the end of the story. Because then we will be in the everlasting embrace of our Father God, who is perfect and holy. I love the way that Paul summarizes it in Romans 5. He says these words, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. We're going to respond to that revelation of who Jesus is now by taking communion together. And our children and our young people across this building have also been learning about Jesus on the cross. They've been looking into that. Mark 14 says these words. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many. He said to them, I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God that we're chasing after that Alice spoke about earlier. The kingdom of God is available to us now through relationship, thanks to Jesus. So thank you, Jesus, for your response on the cross that helps us trust in your word. Help us to see you, Jesus, and declare as the centurion did that surely you are the son of God. 